So welcome to Politically Speaking. This is Hollywood Magazine's new podcast and it's coming to you from lockdown. We're looking at a lot of the big political issues of the week and what the magazine will be covering. But as usual, there'll be lots of nonsense too. Uh, the way I answer the question, and I'd, I'd repeat it now, is I think anyone who comes into politics to say they don't want um, the most levers of power to uh, you know, introduce change uh, is lying. So. And I guess the other big issue was that it now looks as if England has um, broken away from the rest of the, the, the United Kingdom in terms of what it's doing. At the moment, you can apparently get childcare to come to your house if you're paying them, but you can't have a relative over to look after your kids. You can get a cleaner in, but you can't see an elderly relative, even if they are obviously helping out in terms of you, you being able to work. I still remember the look on all your faces when I came into the editorial meeting just after the election in 2016 and said, um, right, I have a great idea, we're going to have a baby. Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Hollywood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Hollywood, along with Liam Crocodi, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician, as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. So first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular section of the magazine where we chart the changing fortunes, the successes and failings of different political players. Mandy, I've got a few different ideas this time. Um, I don't know if you just want to... That's good, because we don't usually. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite a controversial bit of the magazine, usually. <laughs> we always, always have lots of suggestions for bad week, uh-huh. but very few for good week. Maybe that's a reflection on our politics. It does tend to be harder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it says something about politics at the moment. I think so. Um, I actually, I do have an idea for good week, actually. Yeah. Uh, you want to hear it? Yeah, carry on. I think it's a good week for furloughed workers in the UK. Yeah. Um, That obviously comes after the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to October. That means that the job retention scheme will continue to pay up to 80% of people's wages. That's uh, up to £2,500 per month, um, at least until the end of July. And I think that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if I suppose you're you're looking at this as a journalist, but as a managing director of business too. It looks like that stage things might become a little bit more uncertain and you seem to hint that um yeah furloughed workers will be able to return to work part-time from august but employers will be expected to cover more of the cost i think it's really complicated i mean obviously it is to be welcome uh, that the furlough schemes to be extended um that's affected us as a business we've got um two or three people on furlough mm. in fact um one of the journalists asked to go on furlough because she has two young children at home and it particularly benefits her. I think as a business, it helps us plan. Um, But certainly there's lots of questions out there and I think they need to be answered, not least whether Scotland comes, uh, England comes out of furlough before Scotland and whether our bill would still be met. Um, There's also questions about holidays and entitlement about those things. I mean, I think what's worrying for me is when you look at that 53% of Scottish small businesses have closed their doors during this time. There's at least a third saying that they're not sure if they'll ever reopen. That's, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so this is a good week, but it falls into a possible bad future. We just need to get to grips with the numbers. 
really. Yeah, it's a kind of it's a good week for now, isn't it? I mean, yeah, exactly. I think people did need that reassurance. Yeah, it's not a particularly happy good week, actually. No, we no, we I think with all of these things, there's a kind of double-edged sword, isn't there? There's a good week yeah. for some people, bad week for others. What about a uh, bad week? Bad week. I've got down here a bad week for political messaging, and Ooh, that comes yeah. after the uh, the switch away from from stay home basically and in england that is obviously um yeah it was seemed like quite a kind of confused attempt to change the to change the message i think it was robert jenrick the housing minister was sent out to explain that we want now to have a message which encourages people to go to work Uh, he then shortly clarified saying we want people to stay home as much as possible Uh, that means at the moment, you can apparently get childcare to come to your house if you're paying them, but you can't have a relative over to look after your kids. You can get a clearing, but you can't see an elderly relative yeah. if they are obviously helping out in terms of you, you being able to work. Dominic Rabb was sent out to explain yeah. that, um, yes, you can meet with more than one person from a different household before then uh, clarifying again to say that you absolutely cannot meet more than one person from outside your own household. So I don't think it was a particularly... Uh, successful week for communication in that sense. Yeah, no, I think people were left very confused. And I guess the other big issue was that it now looks as if England has um, broken away from the rest of the the, the United Kingdom in terms of what it's doing. Mm-hmm. So you could almost sense, I feel, Nicola Sturgeon's frustration with all of that. And obviously, she's sticking to the message that stay at home saves lives. Yeah, there's a kind of an irony in that, isn't there? Because the, the whole time we've been told that it's important that the UK continues along one path, that there's no divergence, and actually it Turns out it's the Prime Minister that's made England diverge from the rest of the UK's abroad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very strange. I mean, I, I, I'm I still confused as to what I can and can't do in a way. So I all I'm deciding to do is I'm going to cycle to work, passing one relative on the way, and I'll probably just live in the office and get a sunbed. <laughs> Because in, um, that was one of the rules that's quite different between Scotland and England, perhaps reflecting the weather. But in England, you can now go to a park and sunbathe. In Scotland, that is very much a no-no. Although I suspect <laughs> that was always a bit of a no-no. Yeah, that's climate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, completely. I think it's also body image, which... Ah, body image, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that was a, a, another very depressing thing for me this week to see a survey that came out from the YWCA that basically was talking about young women's body image. And 80% of those women mm. still feel that their body image limits their life choices and life chances, which is just awful. Mm. Um, four in five girls saying that body image holds them back mm-hmm. and 38% saying that uh, it negatively impacts in their relationships. I mean, that just, yeah, yeah that feels really depressing. Yeah, it, it does. It feels like something that's probably been exacerbated by social media. I think that's probably people's reaction a lot of the time is to assume that, I think there was a mention of Instagram in that in that research as well, yeah. There wasn't, yeah. Um yeah, actually, forty-five percent of young women saying that body image was influenced by celebrities, and we all know that they use all kinds of methods to make themselves look per- perfect. So, yeah, I mean, all all social media effectively is just a kind of it's it's how you want the world to see you, and it's never yeah. true. It's never real. You know, it's yeah. all a construction. Yeah. I think the the other thing, Liam, is that it's it's the kind of never-ending bad week of Trump, isn't it? I mean, this week was just appalling that an American journalist of Chinese descent asks a question, a very reasonable question about the virus, and he, he just stared at her and said, 
ask China. I mean, the man is a boor. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just the action of a bully, isn't it? Yeah, completely. He just kind of stormed off petulantly afterwards as well, because I mean, that's the thing. She, you know, she did challenge him afterwards. Yeah. And he, just, he couldn't handle it at all. Yeah. But on the other hand, it could be worse. You, you could be still trying to convince people to drink bleach. So I suppose there's, a, there's an upside <laughs> yeah. to everything, isn't there? That was definitely the pinnacle, wasn't it? Drink bleach to get rid of the virus or, or shine a light up areas of your body that haven't seen the light of day for some time. <laughs> Horrendous. Well, yeah. In fairness to Trump, he does sort of look like a man who survived drinking bleach. <laughs> it's true. It's mainly landed on his head. <laughs> <laughs> So Liam, we've just put the magazine to bed. So it's that usual uh, day after magazine print day, feeling slightly hungover perhaps. Um, it's a good mag. Uh, very happy with the front cover, etc. Do you want to talk yeah. about some of the things that we've put in there? Uh, well, I suppose the, the kind of the central feature is uh, on the Hollywood baby, which is a kind of project the right word it's a, a thing that we've been running for for four years now um Kirsty, the hollywood baby it was a she's a fictional baby i should add there is no there is no real baby i still remember the look on all your faces when i came into the editorial meeting just after the election in 2016 and said <laughs> um right i have a great idea we're gonna have a baby and you all looked at me um nobody rude enough to actually say are you sure that's even biologically possible anymore mandy um <laughs> But basically what I wanted to do throughout the election, um, First Minister and others had talked about making Scotland a better place for children to grow up, grow up in. So I felt that if we created Kirsty, the Holyrood baby, she could become the barometer for how policies over the whole parliamentary term affected a child. And, you know, at the end of it, this time, probably next year, we'll be able to say whether or not her life would be improved. So Kirsty is a fictional baby. I didn't have her. <laughs> Brought up in, uh, you know, an area of socioeconomic deprivation. Um, and we've made her quite, you know, she's quite flexible in terms of how we see her. So this time she's four. She's reached four. She's had a tough time of it uh, in, in the past, Kirsty. Yeah. Um, and she's now in lockdown yeah. uh, with her mum, Kaylee. I think it's worth keeping in mind how confusing it is for an expert when you phone up and say that you want to talk about a baby and they ask you about the baby and you have to explain that it's actually a narrative device um, <laughs> that we've used to chart deprivation. Yeah. But I think, yeah, by now she's four and um, we're kind of assessing her progress and from, from what, what the article goes into basically is just how lockdown is affecting her, the increased stress that's um, that's kind of playing on her mum. Yeah, particularly um, on her mum, I think, because she hasn't yeah. um, got access to extended family anymore um, and she's <laughs> on her own with a four-year-old. I mean, I have to say there are times I have spoken in our editorial meetings and said, should we just take Kirsty into care? Yeah, um, and I, <laughs> So I, I think we can all appreciate how Kaylee, her mum, is starting to feel and that's what we've tried to reflect in this piece. Yeah. That's right. I mean, the, the other bit that I've, I've done in this magazine is a look at uh, learning from home. Um, I talked yeah. to quite a few teachers as part of that, that feature, just for background. And the, the one thing that did come out of it is just there's a real awareness that every child that they, normally, that they normally teach has a completely different experience at the moment. They're all going into different households, some of which will be good environments for learning and other ones where it's just impossible. And I suppose that's really what the, what's happening to, to Kirsty at the moment as well, although she isn't ready for school. Yeah, I think as well that what we all looked at for, for Kaylee was 
she would normally have interaction with other mums particularly. So she would get a feel for where things were going wrong or going right. And mm-hmm. she's feeling pretty isolated and vulnerable at the moment. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that can cause problems. Normally, when you're dealing with vulnerable children, you get to see them. Outside people get to see them. They get to see if their development's mm-hmm. going the right way. And when you're under pressure and you're feeling vulnerable and you're feeling isolated, there's a lot of ingredients there for things going wrong. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, you've, you've got a, we've got an interview with Marie Todd as well, the, the children's minister in the next issue. Yeah. And, you know, Mary approaches her brief as children's minister with huge energy and enthusiasm and optimism. And I think um, for her, this is probably a particularly hard time as well, because it is quite bleak. If families are in flats without gardens, um, we're only too well aware of the risks that are involved in Mm. that. And Mary, in the interview, talks quite a lot about things that the Scottish Government are trying to do just in terms of outreach and using digital tools to make sure that people are keeping in touch with um, other supports, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's the other thing that came into another piece I was that I was working on was the. I mean, basically, we we became aware of about sixty families around Glasgow that are undergoing asylum applications. So these are child asylum seekers who are now unable to access the internet entirely. So, although schools have given out devices and they've given equipment and people can stay in touch using the internet. If you don't have the internet, then you've got no chance of that at all. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably the story of this lockdown in some ways is just how vastly different experiences have been depending on you, whether you have access to these resources. Yeah. Well, I think um, there was a report out this week that absolutely highlighted the inequalities that are being exacerbated by the whole lockdown issue, well, by COVID. I mean, deaths among uh, black and ethnic minorities, people with diabetes, obesity, and living in the poorer parts of the country. It may come mm-hmm. as no particular surprise, but it's just when you see it reflected in actual deaths, it's horrendous. Yeah, and, and speaking of deaths, obviously that's something that you've covered in your in your column for the next issue as well, Mandy. Yeah, I feel, you know, since lockdown, every column I've written has touched on COVID, but it also reflects, I guess, a, a mood that I feel, which is pretty bleak. There's not a lot of fun around this. And um, this week, my mum was admitted to hospital. She fell. She was trying to manage her own risk um, by not waiting for a carer to come in to help her dress and she fell and dislocated a hip and was taken into hospital. That made me just reflect on the whole issue of being separated from family. I mean, I couldn't go and see her because of the lockdown. And there was a particular moment in the parliament this week as well where the first minister had to stop and she clearly was about to break down and she was talking about the number of deaths in care homes. And it just highlighted the fact that these huge decisions that are going on right now, they do rest heavily and they rest heavily on her shoulders. And she is a human Mm -hmm. being. And I think it's worth remembering all of that. But that shouldn't stop us from analysing, scrutinising and criticising the actions of the Scottish Government. And my column, I guess, this issue really focuses on the BBC documentary that was broadcast that revealed that there'd been a cluster of cases around a particular conference that was held in Edinburgh in mm. um, at the end of February. Um, and it transpires that 25, I think it was, um, people connected with that conference. Out of a conference of 70 people, 
were found to be COVID positive. And the news of that cluster was revealed in the documentary rather than from government. Now, Scottish government obviously say there was no cover-up. They had reported the figures. And that's true, they had. Um, and they've used the excuse of um, patient confidentiality for not revealing any more than that. And I just don't think that's good enough. I think the Scottish public have responded incredibly well to the demands that have been put on them because of the lockdown. And I think they deserve, and I think they're grown up enough to be told, not the, the truth, but not being told individual names or individual cases, but at least being told at the end of February, this happened, it was a cluster, it could have been the early warning sign for um, what was about to happen. But, you know, days later, we were, the chief medical officer was saying to people it was fine to go to the Six Nations International Rugby match. I just wonder if that will be a point we look back on in history and say, we should have acted earlier, we should have acted harder, and we may well have saved lives. So quite depressing, really, I'm afraid. Do you think, has is, is there been a change in tone in the way that people are sort of reacting to political decisions? Because it, it feels to me like when lockdown first came in, the, the Scottish Conservatives were quite careful to be fairly conciliatory towards the, to the, towards the Scottish government. And the Scottish government was being quite careful in how it responded to the UK government. And obviously, these are, those, are, those are all people that often have quite a lot of tension between them. It feels to me like it's stepping up a little bit. You know, do you, maybe it is becoming a little bit more heated. Yeah. Well, you know, despite, I think, politicians like uh, Nicola Sturgeon continuing to say that she's not making a political point, there are inherent political points to be made in this. Mm -hmm. And um, we've, we've definitely diverged in certain ways. And um, the First Minister has taken different steps to what's happening um, down in England. But I think. I think there are concerns around, particularly around care home deaths, and particularly this, um, the news of that cluster. So I, I just think people are starting to analyse quite early and scrutinise, and the politics is coming in. Mm -hmm. And I, I also sense um, a defensiveness from the Scottish government that wasn't there before. I think people felt Nicola Sturgeon, and I still think this. I think they feel that she, they have confidence in her. She has an empathy, perhaps, that Boris Johnson doesn't display. And there, there have been surveys and polls come out saying that people believe what she's saying more than perhaps what he's saying. And that's mm. why, again, I think that that's why there was so much um, discontent, really, about the news about that cluster happening in Edinburgh in February, that mm -hmm. we've, we've put our trust in somebody and we want also that to be uh, reciprocated. I suppose you saw the same thing with the resignation of the chief medical officer as well. You know, people, people probably felt actually a little bit betrayed by that in some ways. I think they absolutely did. And, you know, it, it is difficult right now. I think um, people are starting to ask why the voices of other more independent experts perhaps wasn't taken into, you know, taken into the tent, if you like. Uh, maybe we'll find that out at the end of all of this. But Scotland has a great legacy of scientists, of great knowledge. And I think perhaps there could have been a wider conversation being had. Okay, Mandy, the last bit I wanted to ask you about was the cover of the next issue, um, yeah. which obviously features uh, your, Douglas Ross, the, the Scotland Office Minister, um, an MP, former MSP. Yeah. I mean, is, it, is that the worst pun you've ever put in Hollywood magazine? <laughs> 
So the front cover is great. So we've used the um, official, formal, quite staid photograph of Douglas Ross on the front cover with a backdrop of um, cartoonesque cows, which I'll explain the relevance of. Um, but basically, Douglas Ross uh, started his life as a dairy farmer and has very quickly gone from a dairy farmer to a councillor, to an MSP, to an MP. And he's now part of the government as a junior minister in the Scotland office. So the headline is moving on up. That is, I mean... <laughs> That's what you know. I've spent thirty-five years being a journalist. That's really important. I would say Nicola Sturgeon must condemn, frankly. <laughs> you do know it's one of the um, the funniest interviews I've done. I think uh, I didn't really know a huge amount about Douglas Ross. I mean, he was a, a, an MSP for just a year, Scottish Conservative MSP for just a year, and. What we probably knew about him was he was also an international referee and he got into lots of trouble and lots of criticism for missing debates sometimes because and votes sometimes because he was uh, refereeing. But also he made some rather uh, cutting remarks. Uh, he was asked in an interview at one point um, what would be the first thing he would do if he was prime minister. And he talked about the fact that he would get rid of um, gypsy uh, camps. Yeah, tougher enforcement. Tougher yeah. enforcement against gypsy travellers, I think. Yeah. So, to be fair to Douglas, he came back on that and apologised um, uh, for the comment and said that the ha he hadn't had time to give the context for it. Um, but he did reiterate that for his constituents, illegal gypsy camps were a big problem. And so, these were the two things that kind of really stuck in my mind when mm -hmm. I went in to do the interview. And the interview ended up being all about cows, really, <laughs> and his love of cows. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, there's a great, <laughs> there's a great moment. I mean, it, it, he can give you such huge detail about cows, their personalities, why they have certain names. I mean, at one point, he even said to me that he could tell uh, which cow he was looking at just by looking at its backside. <laughs> which um, I said to him, did he think that that was a useful tool now that he was in the House of Commons? And he did say that he thought it could be a good training point for the speaker. <laughs> All right. Yeah. See, I would have thought working as a as an assistant referee would have prepared him for the Commons more effectively than looking at cows' backside. Yeah, but, uh, possibly. Just I mean, he, what you learn, doesn't it? <laughs> the other thing that I thought was really interesting was we were talking about um, how he'd met his wife, and he was saying that during campaigning, she she's a policewoman. And she'd been out on patrol with one of her colleagues and seen a big poster of Douglas um, somewhere in the Moray countryside with a photograph of him. And she'd said to her colleague, oh, he, he's, he looks a bit of all right. And her colleague knew someone that knew Douglas who then arranged um, a blind date for them. So he was standing outside this uh, bar at the designated time and he'd said, OK, you know what I look like, but how will I recognise you? And she said, oh, I'll be wearing a black and white top. Mm. So he stood there quite nervous and um, a woman uh, of more elderly age, perhaps, than he'd uh, envisaged, along with um, three or four kids, came down walking towards him, smoking, and he thought, this isn't quite what I thought uh, I would be meeting. And just mm. as he was about to step forward to say, hello, I'm Douglas, she walked past him and Crystal, who was also wearing a black and white top, followed and um, 
and they met and they had a good night and five years later they got married. Oh, that's a lovely story. <laughs> I know it just worries me slightly that his favourite cow is a, a Holstein, which is black and white, and oh. uh, Crystal was wearing a black and white top, and they've oh, still been, <laughs> they've since bought a Dalmatian. Oh right! Wow. So it's quite a. So it's not all black and white, Liam. <laughs> No, not all politics is black and white. You've got a bit of this interview to play, don't you? (laughs) I have. I think we're going to listen to that now. So I suppose first for me, given your trajectory, if you like, from dairyman to UK government minister, is being leader of the Scottish Conservatives an opportunity missed? Uh, I don't think so. Um, No, uh, I don't believe so. And, and also the other thing is when I ask any politician about um, how they got into politics, what their ambitions are, they always tend to say, oh, you know, I was an accidental politician or it all just happened to me. I mean, when you were asked that question previously, you said, yes, I would like to be Prime Minister. Um, is that still the case? I, the way I answer the question, and I'd, I'd repeat it now, is I think anyone who comes into politics to say they don't want um, the most levers of power to... Uh, you know, introduce change uh, is lying. So whether they say they don't want to be Prime Minister or not, if they had the opportunity to lead their country in a direction they thought was the best for the you know the country they represent, uh, then I think they would take it. And I think that's why everyone should aspire uh, to the very top of whatever uh, profession they're in. Also, you know, our current Prime Minister, uh, Boris Johnson, he said as a child that he wants to be king of the world. Did you ever voice such ambitions as a child? You know, as a, as a child, I just wanted to be king of my own dairy herd. <laughs> uh, and I almost got there with six cows, but I've still got a bit of work to do on that one. Do you think that's an ambition that you might return to? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been in this house at the moment for... Um, five years and we're, we're it's, my wife says it's not our forever home so we're looking at where we might move to and there's a, a desire to have you know she, crystal wants chickens or things like that so uh, whether i get back to having a dairy herd or not i don't know but i, I like having livestock and, and things around the house and around the area and i think it's quite a nice way to be brought up and i think because i would brought up in that way and I, I feel I benefited from it. I want to see more opportunities for, for my son Alistair. Do cows have personalities? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, and you know, I still remember, you know, the names of, of cows and, and different generations uh, of, of cows and you can see uh, personalities from you know, I'd, I'd look at a, a new heifer that's just calved coming into the milking parlour for the first time and think her grandmother did the exact same thing when she was milked for the first time. So um, you have certain cows that always had to be the first one milked um, in the morning and the afternoon, and you had other cows that you always had to chase in. Um, you had ones that liked to be petted and ones that would run a mile, so they definitely have their own personalities. And, and I think that's why I could remember... Um, God, this is maybe opening up too much, but I've mentioned it before. Um, do you remember Matthew Kelly had a series You Bet? Yeah. Yeah, well, I always say to my family, I could have gone on You Bet and identified every one of our 200 cows that, on the farm that I was at just by looking at their rear udder. Um, and that's, that's how I, you know, I got that involved in, in the cows and their personalities and how they looked and their markings. I could tell them all their numbers and their, their names. Um, just by looking at the back end. <laughs> Can you do the same with politicians? <laughs> it, it, it would be a good, um, good training to be speaking.
kid of the house, maybe. <laughs> What's your favourite name for a cow? Uh, well, so there's the usual one, Daisy, uh, and I like Daisy because on, on the farm, Alison and Judith Sutherland uh, had they had a cow called Highland Mo Daisy May, and she was the first cow uh, that I saw winning the championship at Nairn Show. But if it came down to a single name, it's Roxy, because the first cow I bought, who then became excellent, classified excellent, was this cow called Winton Gibson Rox 3. And as I said earlier, she goes back to the international cow of the century, Glenridge Citation Roxy, who was scored. Uh, we have a scoring system for cows. It goes up, it's out of 100, but 97 is the unofficial maximum you can get. And she was the first cow in the world to score 97 points. Oh, wow. Um, just an off the question. When everyone's being interviewed at the moment during lockdown or taking part in virtual meetings, have you ever had to worry about what books you've got on your shelves? Do you do a quick rearranging? No, because I don't get interviewed in front of a bookshelf. All my Zoom calls are done in we've got a kind of lean-to that's got big windows. It's, it's an old house where it's not an old house. It's, you know, it's not a modern house. Um, and So on a day like today, if we're on a Zoom call, you see blue skies, some trees and some fields um, around the area that I live in. And I think I want everyone to see how much I'm enjoying being at home rather than seeing what I've got on my bookshelf. What, no cows in the background? No cows? Well, that's, that is a problem in that when I walked into the election uh, count uh, last December and I had a 1% chance of retaining my seat, according to the exit poll, I thought, I'm out of a job. And for the first time in, at that stage, 12 and a bit years, um, I wasn't going to be representing any area, so I'd have to go back to work. And the only work I'd previously done was milk cows, but Murray has now only got two dairy farms in the whole area. Um, so my choices of employment were quite limited because, sadly, dairy has gone from a lot of smaller farms to just two in the whole of Murray. They've maybe got as many cows as all those farms had put together. Um, but, yeah, we've only got two, one at Seddon and one uh, at Mandeen at Elgin. Maybe politicians could do something about that, Douglas. Well, uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but there's still plenty of milk. That's part of the problem we've got at the moment. There's too much milk going around. Yeah. I suppose the other interesting thing that I read about you was um, that Atomic Kitten is your favourite band. It absolutely is. Um, so uh, I, I don't know how it came about, but I really liked their song, uh, Whole Again. And when I was at college, we used to have a karaoke night on a Wednesday. Now, it, it was a bad night to have it because Wednesday was our half day of study. So the bar was open from one o'clock. So by the time you got to karaoke on a Wednesday night, uh, all your inhibitions had gone. And I uh, I stood up one night and sang uh, Whole Again. I got quite a good response. And then years later, uh, when I was training with the director, we used to go away to La Manga in January for a week when the, the Premiership was, was shut down. And at the end of four days, really intensive training and, you know, eating well, uh, the Scottish Referees, um, uh, Scottish Football Association Referees Department put on a, a karaoke night. And again, you know, I wasn't that well known amongst refereeing circles. Uh, I would say, and I just went up on the stage and sang uh, Atomic Kitten Hole again, and it got me quite well known um, amongst some of my colleagues that hadn't quite appreciated someone could be so committed to a song like Hole Again yeah. that they didn't have to read the words and they had their own actions to it. It's an achievement, it really is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the final thing for me is that football's tended to get you into more bother than your politics, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> is, is that going to continue, do you think? Well, you know, 
know, it, it always will, you know, whether it's, uh, obviously there was issues when uh, I did games when I wasn't in Parliament, um, but um, what, what I always felt was, you know, I didn't miss anything that I was going to be taking part in, but I'm, I'm not trying to defend it, I've made a decision since saying that um, I wouldn't officiate matches when Parliament was sitting, but even when I was getting the most slack, and, and it was difficult for my family and Crystal being at home, when there's lots written about me in the papers, I was still getting younger people in Murray saying, actually, we quite like the fact that a guy that was refereeing on the welfare pitches uh, in Forest and across Murray could then go to the new camp and officiate Lionel Messi or do Champions League matches or potentially um, you know, was on the, the list as a reserve assistant referee to represent Scotland at the Euros. So for all the hassle it brings you, you know, if some people are encouraged to get into football and particularly refereeing because they can see that you know, a guy from Forest can climb up the ranks from um, pub league football to the Champions League, then I think it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and you know, whatever I do in refereeing, you normally please one one half of the spectators and you disappoint the other half. And it's a bit like politics; you can't please all the people all the time. And I wouldn't try to either in politics or in football. That's true. Let's hope we get both back soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And actually, the funniest thing about that interview was the follow-up question. So I had this huge long list of different cows' names that Douglas had talked about. So um, despite my best efforts on Google, I had to then phone him and ask him to spell all the names out. And he even said, although he may now be worried about what the interview actually consists of, but he said, I'm quite sure you didn't expect the follow-up uh, questions to be about names of cows, which was very, very true. But it was, you know, it was a lovely interview. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope he does too. This is sixty-second rant, which is basically nothing to do with politics. Although I'd like politicians to do something about these people. So Liam, you know that moment where we go into a pub and uh, there's always that man that asks you what you're doing and we say, oh, we work in uh, political journalism and they go, oh, I'm so not interested in politics. And then they spend <laughs> bloody 60 seconds ranting on at you about politics. You see, that's, that's why I don't tell people that I am a political journalist when I meet them, you see. <laughs> very, very wise. Yeah, I say I'm a, a tax accountant or a, a hitman. Yeah, and of course, no one's interested in those subjects at all. <laughs> no. So anyway, my 60-second rant this week has to be about um, people that, men mainly, I have to say, <laughs> Liam, that spit in the street. I mean, we're, we're living through a global pandemic and there are men running usually. So they're keeping fit. They're making a big show of what they're doing to keep their body in tip top. <laughs> and they spit as they go past. What is that about? Has someone spat on you, Mandy? Not is that what spat this is? on me. <laughs> that would be an entirely different 60-second rant. <laughs> but, but just, well, A, men make such a show of exercise. It's like those, it's only men that dive into a pool making such a big splash. But also <laughs> when men are jogging or running, it's all the big heavy breathing and then the big gob as they go past. Really? Why do they do that? It just shouldn't happen. I've actually been really enjoying seeing the sight of new uh, new runners out there, and you can always tell when there's when there's two older guys. One of them considers himself to be the expert and is trying to coach <laughs> the other. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got one. What about couples walking side by side down pavements? Can we add that in? Oh my God! Do they need to show that they're in love? 
Again, there's a pandemic. Just let us past walk in single file. If I ever have kids, I'm going to make them walk in a line like a crocodile. Oh, well, can I tell you what happened to me last week? I was cycling through Holyrood Park and... Um, not for me to be judgmental, but there was a very short man in front of me wearing a red football strip. I don't know who that belongs to, and I'm not wanting to get into that. But he had four very young children behind him, and they were all scattered across the cycle path. I got nearer, rang the bell, nothing, rang it again, nothing. So I just said to the kids as I got nearer, look, could you just move out of the way so I can at least cycle up here? The short man in the red football strip turns around, and I just got a torrent of abuse. It was horrendous, really horrendous. And I I did feel quite shaken and I cycled past him and then I thought, I'm not standing for that. So I got off my bike, turned around and again he went, yeah, I was talking to you and there was various expletives in that as well. Mm. And I just said to him, do you know, at a time that we're all trying to be a little kinder to everybody else and, we've, and you've got four young children with you, perhaps you should just watch your language. Mm. I'm afraid it didn't work. So I just got even more abuse. Um, and, and actually, when I got to the other end of Hollywood Park and there was a police car stopped, I did say to them, I'm, I don't want to waste time here. But actually, perhaps it might be worth a word because he's got four young children with him. Mm. So I suspect they did. So it, was, it felt a pretty rubbish end to a day, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Maybe politicians could do something about that, Liam. Well, you think it's time for them to act. Politicians must act. Sturgeon must condemn. Politicians must act. Yeah. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.